Welcome and thank you for joining us on Disrupt TV. My name is Vala Afshar, Chief Digital Evangelist at Salesforce and your co-host uh, for the next hour. We welcome you to uh, follow us on Twitter at Disrupt TV Show. Send Ray, myself, and our distinguished guests your questions using hashtag Disrupt TV. We'll do our best to answer your questions live during the show. It's my pleasure to introduce my co-host. He is the CEO and founder of Constellation Research. He regularly contributes to Harvard Business Review, ZDNet, and other publications. And he happens to be, in my humble opinion, one of the best futurists to follow on Twitter at RWANG0. Welcome, Ray Wong, to Disrupt TV. Hey, thanks. I got Ba. Um, ba, my co-host, I want to introduce him real quickly. He's one of the top CIO and CMO followers on Twitter, most social person known to the enterprise software and marketing world all in one, uh, more importantly, an author himself. Uh, but here in this capacity, my awesome co-host and Friday companion. So what are we doing? Who do we have today? We're talking like to top CEO startups today. So, and innovation folks. I love you calling me your top companion. That's cool. <laughs> Don't tell your wife that. Don't tell her that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We're honored to have Luke Beatty, CEO and chairman of Brandfolder as our first guest. Brandfolder is a platform that powers your brand via digital asset management, protection, measurement, and so much more. We're going to learn a lot about Brandfolder in the next 20 minutes. Prior to joining Brandfolder as CEO, Luke serves as the president of media brands at Verizon and as a managing director at Techstars. We've had Techstars on our show. In oh, yeah. 2004, Luke founded Associated Content, which was sold to Yahoo in 2010. You can follow Luke on Twitter at L-U-K-E underscore B-E-A-T-T-Y. Welcome, Luke, to Disrupt TV. Thanks, guys. This is awesome. I appreciate you having me. Happy Friday. Happy Friday. Happy Friday. Let's get guys, to the heart of this. You guys have good energy. <laughs> we try. It's Friday, right? It's Friday. It's the first summer. Most of the kids are out, right? I mean, it's like, it's hopefully a beautiful summer where you are. Um, yep. You're in Denver, right? So yep. I want to get to the heart of it. Denver's like emerging, bustling tech scene between Denver and Boulder. Lots of stuff going on there. Um, let's start here. What's the tech scene like? And how's it changed over the last five to 10 years since you've been pummeling along here with uh, Brandfolder? Yeah, um, you know, it's, I'm born and raised here. I went, I grew up here and then went to college and grad school on the East Coast and then moved back. Um, but I've been working in the tech scene here for the last, you know, almost uh, 15, 20 years now. And I think it's, it's, it's changed a lot. I would say I, I felt like it was going to mature faster, but I feel like we've definitely reached that point now. I think, um, We've always had a really good steady drumbeat of early stage startups in Denver and Boulder. Um, but we weren't migrating a lot of them up to being mezzanine level companies and then having big anchor tenants and having huge, um, huge businesses here in the full range uh, of, of, of technology size, medium to large size tech companies. Uh, that's now changing. Uh, and I would say that's changing in the last year. Uh, we've had you know, a lot of companies now either moving here wholly or really building their second campus here. Uh, and I think that's because of talent, uh, being in the middle of the country, I think is strategic. Uh, those of us that live here, we have to travel to the Valley in New York on a regular basis. And that's just the reality. Um, this is a good spot for that. But we've had, you know, Slack is building out a huge setup here. We've got Strava building out a big area here. Marketo's second headquarters is going to be here. So, and those have all really happened in the last nine months. So, um, I think it's just becoming, uh, we're having a, 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 a 
much broader collection of, of bigger companies as opposed to just churning through lots of startups and, um, and not having those big anchor tenants. Luke, uh, as, a, as a former CMO before joining Salesforce, I certainly and my team appreciated the power of digital asset management. So I want you to talk to our audience about what that is, but before that, or integrated in that, tell us about Brand Folder and what you do, and then talk to us about the importance of DAM in terms of agility and engagement and really being able to run a well-oiled marketing function. Yeah, so um, we see uh, Brand Folder and DAM broadly. I think uh, there's kind of two worlds of DAM. I think there's the, the, the DAMs like Brand Folder, which are really focused on, on DAM as a means to growing brand. Uh, there are other DAMs that are more on a means of, I would say, file management and, and, and more of a, a, a CM or a CIO kind of um, solution. We operate more on the uh, brand and brand and brand assets focused on, on with the end unit, not just being consistency and brand logistics, but brand engagement. Um, we, don't, we don't create an enormous amount of creative to store it and to file it and to name it. We use it to grow our brands and we want to know which, which, uh, which assets work the best and, and how to access those. Um, we, we have a, we believe that the, that the, that whether it's brand folder or otherwise, the dam is a, a, a very thin layer um, that sits in the middle of everything, right? Uh, all the creative assets of the world need to run or of a business need to run into that dam, um, whether it's video, uh, product images, uh, you name it, uh, sales enablement tools, all the different things that need to happen within a company, they go into this thin layer different collections are made with different permissions around those. And then those are pushed out into omni-channel marketing so that whether you're in a uh, email marketing experience or a, or a social experience, social media experience or e-commerce that the right assets go to the right places. Um, and at each one of those three levels, you have data and insights to help you better understand your business. So as you're ingesting creative, you better understand which, what you're learning about this, this creative is unique in this way. This creative um, looks a lot like this other creative, um, recommending other types of creative to come into those in, into the system. And then when you're in the system, understanding who has access to what, where it's going, where it's routed, if things are expired, if things are new, and then coming out of it, the performance of that data so that you're of those assets so that you can better understand um, how to get the right content to the right people. No, this is great. It actually sounds like you, you've walked through the evolution of how content and marketing have come together, right? We started out with the actual content and people transacted against it. Then we now have a lot more engagement that's actually happening with it because we're collaborating with working with it. And it's also part of these large experience journeys that are happening. Um, and then at that point, we're now at a point where we're using the analytics and insights to deliver on mass personalization at scale. Right. And, and this evolution is, it's huge, right? From, from you, I mean, the lore was, right? And I don't know if this is true. This is what people keep saying. The lore was you scribbled to something on a napkin and said, hey, let's get all these logos in place and start a company, right? And I don't know if that's true, but if that's true. Yeah. And that's when we just had a logo. And now companies, the first companies that worked with us, and some of the first companies that work with us are the ones that still have us, like Salesforce. You know, they had 20 assets, right? And that was, that was a lot, right? One logo, a couple colors, a couple fonts. Those same companies have 10,000 creative assets now, and they expect that personalization and they expect that um, 
that, that, that through the usage and through the management of those assets, they become smarter and the right ones get in the right places. And that content explosion is really what's driving a lot of this is because there's a personalization element, there's context that has them, we got the content coming in all at once, and, and that makes it hard. So what, what can people do with that content to improve content velocity? Well, I think that they need to, you know, you need to be able to facilitate the collaboration so that um, everybody's assets are, are, are are accessible by all the right people. If we all only work with the assets that we have on our Google Drive or on our desktop, we're operating in a contextual vacuum. So how do you get all of the assets within a company, whether it's a huge Fortune 500 company um, or, a, or a smaller medium-sized business, how do you make it so that um, you federate all the assets, all of the creative energy around each one of those, all the metadata um, and all of the usage guidelines around each one of those things, and take advantage of all of that. I think disparate, unconnected collections of assets in lots of different places is is the is the is the evil of of a of a creative organization that that's not taking advantage of all of its um, opportunities. You know, so when you look at some of the core considerations for digital asset management, you have organization discovery, security set up and training the user interface, whatever adjacent platforms you need to integrate with. But then you look at advanced capabilities where you have, as you said, over 10K digital assets, and you've got from content delivery networks, ability to white label, uh, insights and analytics driven by uh, AI and machine learning, uh, video editing and some advanced capabilities. So yeah. This incredible amount of innovation that's going into digital asset man management far beyond what anybody, what maybe the novice would think is a foldering exercise. Talk yeah. About the future of DAM in the context of AI and how you're really going to create data-driven capabilities, not just uh, you know what what most people think DAMs are doing today. Yeah, so the future of, of, of a digital asset management experience for us is, is really two paths. One path is around the logistics of getting the right stuff in the right place, making it so you don't have assets for all, making it so the agency knows how to talk to the sales enablement team and the, and the e-commerce group. And that, that, I would say, is never going to go away. It's going to get easier. Um, so we have a great deal of our attention focused on the logistics of, 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 of getting that around. I would say that that's gonna go away over time. Um, and that's not a business, that's just a convenience. Yeah, no, it's a feature and a, and a convenience, definitely. Right, so. and, and, the, and the, part, the second part that's more meaningful um, to your question is, is around understanding what you can gather about your company and your brand by the usage of those assets. So that we have three layers, like I said, one is around as things are ingested, what do I know about these things? What can I learn about these things? Okay. What, are the, um, what is the, what should the, the constituencies come to know about these assets as they come into the system? Um, as far as rights management, as far as best, best time of day, um, regional, all of these kinds of things, geo, um, all of that. And then the second layer is around understanding you're a brand manager um, what's going on and who's got what and almost like we call them like internally we call them like library um, information about who's checked out what where is it um, what's expiring and, and, and all that and then 
the performance stuff. And I would say the best way to think about that is if you think about creative right now, the creative that we know the most about in this world, and I have this from, you know, from working in, in, in media for most of my career is the thing, the creative that's been run through an ad server is the creative is the only creative we know anything about. And we know everything about that. Right. But yet that 300 by 250 on the page, that's essentially just a logo or a video or whatever, but we know a lot about that. The future is making it so that you know that about every piece of creative on the page, whether it was run through an ad server or not. So um, what, you, what you come to appreciate about understanding what the right creative is and, and how it's being consumed and load and safety and all these different kinds of things that you would come to expect about running creative through an ad server, we should get to, get to know over time um, with every piece of creative. But Luke, ultimately, we're going to get to a point where the dam is smart enough to recommend creative assets. Yeah. And, and, and that's like, that is a, a dream come true for marketeers. Yeah. And um, not only are we going to know which, which, which ones, but we're going to know because if we connect our dam to all of our potential distribution points, which like I said, could be commerce to marketing, sure. marketing to social, that then we're really going to get good at it because you're going to start to understand how an asset performed uh, uh, in a, in a commerce experience on Amazon and pass that same, um, value and insight over to your email marketing campaign. Right. And this is how we get to content velocity, right? Yeah. And you're reducing susceptibility to human error where we're miscatalog miscataloging or tagging content. Uh, and, 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 and that will introduce efficiency and better workflow as well. Yep. Let's get let's get some stats out here. Like, how, how big is the company at the moment? Like, how many customers? Right? Where, where are you seeing like the growth uh, come going forward? The uh, so our customer base is about seven thousand brands. I would say wow. half of those are brands that you know. Um, maybe more than half of those brands are, are household household sort of names. Uh, we have um, a lot of CPG, um, a lot of apparel brands things where you can imagine there are just an enormous amount of creative assets. Obviously CPG has a lot of e-commerce. E-commerce means more digital assets. You imagine every t-shirt that's sold out in the world has a video, five different images from different angles, and that becomes massive. You have um, a lot of food and beverage. They're managing a lot of labels. They're dynamically changing them all the time. Uh, they're running out new lines. Uh, and so you have a lot of, uh, we have a lot of traction in that world. Um, a lot of technology companies um, who have a very unique use case for getting their brands out, you know, whether it's the Waze or a Salesforce or a Shazam or those brands are all on, on our platform and they use their brand folders uh, in ways to, to, to manage their uh, brand consistency and their assets. Um, a lot of our customers have a lot of brands that so you deal with people like a, um, a ConAgra Foods, which has, you know, 50, 60 different you know, brands in the grocery store. Um, they have an enormous amount of collections for all their different brands and different subsections for that. Um, trying to think what other kind of stats. We've been around for uh, almost six years now. Uh, growth has been very, uh, very, very steady. I would say now, you know, when we started, brand damn kind of stuff was not uh, really a household name. I think now it's it's because of some of the stuff that we discussed, which is just sheer volume of creative, but then also the the growth of 
distribution points for creative have really forced people to, to look at a dam. You know, our best friend is, is a Dropbox or a Box or a Google Drive because that's like the first step is getting your stuff on the cloud um, and then adding features on top of that. So, um, yeah, we have a lot of pro, pro and college sports teams. They manage, they like, we tend to talk about brand licensing, but that's a big part of it is how do I, how do I give my brand to somebody so that they can make a bunch of championship t-shirts, but then expire that asset if my team didn't win? Uh, how, how can I um, get a, a lot of creative about my team, my stadium? You can imagine sports teams are a really good example because everybody understands how they like to change their, their, their logos and colors and jerseys on, on a nightly basis. How, how do those happen? Those need to happen on a, on a platform. Those aren't going to happen over email. Right. Luke, when I look at the current super infographic of MarTech companies. It's crazy. 6,000 plus, uh, and it, it, you know, across IDC had it down to, I think, 78 different categories, but again, ton of companies across multiple categories. I'm a CMO, I have a finite budget, there's pressure for me to deliver a better customer experience, grow the revenue, grow the pipeline. In fact, a lot of Trailblazer CMOs have, now have revenue targets they need to meet. So what advice do you have to a CMO who has a budget, wants to invest smartly, and is overwhelmed in terms of all the options that are there. Yeah, I, I think as it relates to dams specifically or how to yeah, spend sure. that tech budget. No, dams, let's start yeah. with dams specifically. Yeah, I, I think, um, so the, 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 the real kind of uh, interesting thing about our business is that people usually engage with a dam and decide they're gonna make that jump because there's been a thing. Right. There's either been some sort of brand crime or somebody used the wrong thing in the wrong place. And the CMO said, all right, that's it. We're, yeah. this, this can't happen anymore. Yeah. Or they've invested in a, a million dollar rebrand with an agency and they know that getting that into play is going to be a process. It's not going to be an email and it's probably going to be a platform. Right. So that's usually where the ROI gets calculated um, uh, because there's been a thing um, and it's a rebrand. It's some, we call it in here, we sort of call it brand crime um, or there's somebody decided that they're going to launch a new platform to, to, for their e-commerce. And that means that we should have better assets to show our products. Um, it's usually been a thing that drives that the dam is always affordable. A rebrand costs a million dollars. Um, you can have a pretty well-featured brand folder for $100,000 a year. Um, it's not about storage anymore. It's about features and functions. Right. Um, so, you know, we don't really have the issue of should I spend that because it's not a, it, it's not something that, you know, it's not something, unless you're going to use Adobe Experience Manager, which is going to cost you a million dollars a year, um, you're going to be able to do this because you've either invested a significant amount of money in the creative um, that, that you care enough about it. Um, so um, it's usually not about the confusion or issues around um, cost as much as it's around institutionalizing it. Because yeah. um, you talk to any CMO, they're gonna say, yeah, of course we should have a dam. Like this, Absolutely. I mean, it's not a question, it's how do I get everybody to do this? Yes. So it's incumbent on us to make it so that we have a CX team and a technology that allows you to turn a dam on in a month. Um, wow. and awesome. that's what we do. 
Wow. Um, so, so from the back of a napkin to a uh, 7,000 company, 14,000 brand organization is kind of where you're at here. Uh, it's amazing. Uh, we're here with Luke Beatty, CEO and chairman of Brand Folder. You can follow him on Twitter at Luke underscore B-E-A-T-T-Y, live from Denver. Thanks a lot. And one of the hottest tech scenes uh, in the world at the moment. Thanks a lot, guys. I really appreciate you having me on. Thank hey, you. happy Friday. See you in Denver. Yep. Yeah, come out. Yeah, that's right. We should, Ray. We should oh, we've got to do on-site. It's awesome. <laughs> so, well, from one awesome CEO to another awesome CEO, who do we got next? I mean, we, we're talking like these are founder, entrepreneur, multiple CEO type individuals here. I mean, Luke had like two companies before he got here uh, and uh, running, running one of the big AOL operations. Who do we have now? Our next guest is Garab Dillon, is the chairman and CEO of SnapLogic. And he's overseeing the company's strategy, operations, financing, and partnerships. SnapLogic is a leader in self-service applications and data integration. Makes it easier and faster for users to connect apps and data across the enterprise so they can improve process, accelerate decision-making, and drive better outcomes. Grab is an experienced builder, a a builder of technology companies with a compelling vision and value proposition that promises simpler, faster and more cost-effective ways to integrate data and applications to improve decision-making. He's a co-founder. He is the co-founder and former CEO of uh, Informatica uh, before joining, uh, uh, before becoming the CEO of SnapLogic. You can follow Garab on Twitter at G-D-H-I-L-L-O-N. Welcome to Disrupt TV. Great to be here, Vala. Great to be here, Ray. Thank you for having me. Hey, it's awesome. We so have CEOs on our show, Ray. It's just- <laughs> <laughs> Look at the pop CEOs of all these awesome stuff. You're very right. kind. Very kind introduction. Vala, you spoke about our company in such a good way. If you are ever in New York and can help us out a little bit, I'm going to enlist you. <laughs> I'm going to be in New York twice. Great job. <laughs> we got a sales training coming up. Can you help us out? <laughs> no, that's awesome. Hey, well, you know, we are in this cloud revolution for the last 15 years. We thought, we like, well, like, it took this long for everyone to figure it out. Like, we need to be in the cloud. So now everyone's hopping in. We yeah. got cloud, hybrid cloud, multi-cloud. Um, and there are clouds everywhere, right? And so we're having trouble putting all this stuff together again. How do we end up here? I feel like, like this is like a 20-year <laughs> cycle. Like, oh, we got all these yeah. systems. Now we got to come back and bring them together. Same problem, new clothes, what's going on? (laughs) Yeah, so look, it's it's seductive. The cloud is seductive. You turn it on. I mean, my favorite sort of line is CIOs always talk to the marketing people and they say, oh, I don't have an app. It's just a website. It's just a website. Well, it's just hosted somewhere else, right? So we live in a world where websites to your end of the year, very important internet conference are connecting everybody. People are not just buying books on the web. They're balancing their books on the web. They're doing marketing on the web as a former speaker said and so on. So where we've ended up is those chickens have come home to roost. Hmm. All those websites that are running the enterprise today, and I think we're at a tipping point, are now need to be connected, need to work together. I mean, in marketing, just to go to the form of the speaker who was here before me, I mean, marketing, on the average, there are 91 cloud services in the enterprise. This is Sky High Network's Mary Meeker Kleiner presentation. 91 wow. cloud services in the enterprise, 96% of which are not connected. Wow. That's how we ended up here. It was seductive. Everybody got in. The water was fine. <laughs> <laughs> so, so we talked with Luke, and we talked about the smart 
digital asset management, which will be powered by machine learning and AI. Where are we with using some of these advanced capabilities, the promise of AI when it comes to uh, smooth integration capabilities? Yeah, well, it's, sorry. I'll, uh, sure, yeah. So I think it's both ways, right? I mean, Napoleon famously said, an army marches on his stomach. You know, we like to say AI marches on data, okay? <laughs> and he was talking about logistics, the supply chain of an army, food at that time, grass for the horses, and so on and so on. And AI needs data. So what we've done is we have a embraced AI in SnapLogic. We launched Iris, artificial intelligence, a year ago. We started working on it three years ago. We announced it a year ago. It's been a huge success, 90% plus accurate. And what it does is it takes you towards autonomous integration by giving you turn-by-turn -turn directions as you build a data pipeline. Yep. So that has been huge. I mean, it's, it's just been fantastic to see the usage, the adoption, the default of people turning it on and leaving it on. You know, we can see these because we're a cloud company. That's one. The other piece is we are using that AI to help our customers use machine learning and AI algorithms. I mean, you, if most everybody want to have a recommendation of some type. If you're in the sales business, who should I call next? If in the marketing business, what is my potential intent in an omni-channel environment where most of our customers, the enterprise, are? So those sort of things, you have common classification algorithms, you have common neural network algorithms, et cetera, but 80% of that time is spent just doing the sous chef stuff, you know? So we help our customers take advantage of our products, which are fueled by AI, to make AI better for them. So it's, it's the big deal, Vala. This is and, gonna be in our and, decade. Yeah. And in your primary persona, is it a chief information, chief technology? Are you, are, is, it, is it the technical line of business leaders that appreciate the notion of autonomous integration? Or are you finding chief digital officers, chief marketing folks with technical backgrounds? Who are you, who's your primary persona when you're, when you're selling Snapchat? It's primarily, primarily someone who is either the CIO in a mid-company, mid-sized company, couple hundred employees, 500. We typically do business with 500 or more type company. And either that person or somebody who works for her, the head of apps or the head of yeah. analytics. And, uh, and then in certain cases, we have very sp specific data-rich use cases. Thomson Reuters, for example, is building a business graph where they use their data, they package it in a graph, right? There's a social graph in Facebook, a uh, professional graph in LinkedIn. Why can't you have a business graph? Because relationships are links. Yeah. So they populate the business graph using SnapLogic and they sell it to banks and insurance companies. So there's some really deep That's technical awesome. buyers, but mostly it is a self-service persona. It is someone who's a more enlightened IT organization who realizes the only way to get the monkey off their back is to have self-service. We're talking about millennial users and some of the usages off the charts are, are Friends at Adobe Systems, who are one of our largest adopters, have about 800 people coming into www.snaplogic.com every week to self-serve the integrations. It's been remarkable. Yeah, we're definitely seeing that. And, and we're just seeing a rise in people trying to be able to get to yeah. that self-service and, and using ML to identify where integrations right. might break as well from a predictive perspective. So, but here's the problem. Why is everyone still hand coding? What's wrong with everybody? Yeah. Look, I think what's good for the goose is good for the gander, right? I mean, we've built these amazing things. Just imagine when we're starting informatic guys, 1992, me and my co-founder looking at each other and going, 
hey, how do we get C++? I wrote an email to Bjorn Strustrup at Bell Labs, and he kindly sent me a preprocessor and a demangler. He said, you'll need it to debug the C++. I'm like, oh yeah, that's true. You need a demangler. Uh, you know, those times compared to when we're building SnapLogic in this new century, the century of the web, what do you have now? You have elastic load balancers for pennies. Yeah. Stuff that hadn't even been invented yet, right? <laughs> also, you have dynamic programming languages like Python and things that have gotten better. So on the one hand, it is easier to build epic systems. On the other hand, it is easier to get into... Um, epic trouble. Sorry, <laughs> uh, I'm getting an upgrade <laughs> notification. It is easier to get into trouble, to do a point-to-point -point integration. Pretty soon it's two points, three points. And a lot of people are seeing this movie for the first time. They don't realize that this is an N-square problem till they're underwater and this thing has fallen in on them. That's when we get the call. Like, um, you know, what is that joke about if you drive your car to the mechanic, he has a sign. It says, if you repairs, 160 bucks an hour. If you try to repair it yourself, 250 an hour. Because <laughs> they've already kind of messed it up. So, you know. So people try coding because coding has become better. But the N-square problem has become worse because N is larger. <laughs> well, sure. so, so given the fact N is larger, give us more examples of how SnapLogic is making it simpler for customers to not only connect and share, but grow. Yeah. Yeah. So, so what's happened, so the first thing is if you think about our product strategy or philosophy, you know, we challenged ourselves and, you know, God rest Steve Jobs' soul. I hope he doesn't mind my using his name here. But we said to ourselves, what would Apple do to take this dry, somewhat, shall we say, mixed taste, an acquired taste of integration? What would Apple do to make it sexy? What would they do, right? So what they would do is they would marry a very, thoughtful user experience, just a great UX, because we're appealing to people who are computer savvy, many of whom were came of age in the age of the iPhone, certainly in this millennium. Sure. Very sleek UX with enormous scale and power in our web processing, in our processing in a hybrid environment. So that's the most important thing, because to make this happen, you have to bring the power of and together. You want to be easy to use and powerful, not one or the other. Right? And this is pairing up world-class designers with customers and yeah. seeing that outside-in approach in terms of making Indeed. it simple, intuitive, and user-friendly? Our UX designer came from Detroit. He used to design car dashboards. <laughs> awesome. Very cool. I mean, you have to think that way. It's yeah, industrial yeah. design. It's yeah. not like, you know, yeah. drop-down menus from the 90s anymore. It's industrial design. That's what people, look, if somebody's building Airbnb, where did those guys come from? RISD, right? They're the yeah. A in Steam. It's John the art piece. Damn, the model of view controller H grid is no longer useful. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you have to apply industrial design, and then you need all the reliability, availability, scalability, RAS, yeah. security. So bringing that together has helped us replace legacy integrations at places like uh, our friends at Adobe, who have replaced things, legacy products from the last century, like Tipco, Web Methods, even Informatica, wall to wall with SnapLogic. The integration team has shrunk from 48 people to about 12 people but the users have grown to 800. And wow. we've had similar experiences at AstraZeneca, similar experiences. I'm looking at a list here, Bristol Myers, Squibb. We've done well in pharma. Um, Thomson Reuters, we talked about education. We just got Stanford. I see Johns Hopkins, sorry. Just got Stanford. You know, they did the oh, bake off, no they had a legacy product. Uh, they looked at all the other solutions. We, they loved our self-service metaphor. So, so we grow, the usage has skyrocketed because we designed the product to be pervasive and fun to use. 
Uh, and this is integration. It's not like they're playing video games, but we tried to sort of make it as intuitive and current in, their, in all the other industrial products that they have today in their, lap, in their uh, handheld and in their laptop. So I'll give you a stat. We had about 100, tri uh, sorry, 1 trillion objects move through the SnapLogic system in the past 30 days. Wow. That's up from 10 million objects two years ago. Wow. So it's wow. both new customers yeah. and growth of existing customers. All right. So we're definitely saying this, this shift here. Lots of, lots of excitement in it the is. integration space. So now, okay, this is not your first rodeo. We know this. We've talked about the startup scene. I think we have way, way back. I remember visiting some cool I remember. streaming service with you I, in Palo Alto. That was I think you, you were employee one at Constellation. I was employee one at SnapLogic. And we had uh, some <laughs> very uh, soup at your house or something, I remember. <laughs> yes, we did. Yes, we did. Yeah. So, so what's changing with the startup scene here? Are, are the VCs more gun shy? Are they de-risking investments? Have the PE firms like created chaos in the environment? Or are they helping? Like what's changed overall when you think about funding and, and then just, just the tech startup scene? Yeah, you know, good and bad. Uh, there's, first of all, just much more of an understanding of technology. You know, when I was raising capital for Informatica, I was in LA at the time, you know, and I was trying to raise money for this thing. And there were three VCs in LA, all three turned me down. So I came out here in 1994 to get Informatica done, right? That has changed. There's venture capital everywhere. Now, that's the good news, is there's more technology, it's more available at the swipe of a credit card to you. The bad news is, this business has become very money-driven. You know, okay. we used to build companies because we had a burning desire to change something. Mm -hmm. And the wealth creation was a byproduct of it. And what we're seeing now, and I'm sorry to be a little whiny about this, is we're seeing people just doing whatever makes money. You know, let's sell used cars or use this or, you know, some kind of nook and cranny and let's drive a lot of capital at it. Some might work. They may, might become the Uber of the world. Some could go sideways like BP, you know, and it just feels more speculative and sort of more like a casino on some of these things. And I could be wrong. Enterprise is different. You know, people are much more, oh, yeah. they'll give you feedback. If version one doesn't work. They're like, hey, do this and this and I'll buy a million dollars. You're like, I'll be back next Thursday. But if you- Anyone ever was giving you that? I'm in. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm, 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 I'm right back. <laughs> Meanwhile, you're calling the guy in the elevator, stop working on this thing, you know? <laughs> so it has changed for good and bad, Ray. There's more tech, more capital. It's at a higher level, you know, the singularity, lets us do things that were impossible. To do AI and integration, to have autonomous integration, we couldn't even have dreamt about it. We it's saw all this, Stan yeah, Stanford, Mycene, AI for medicine. I couldn't imagine we could do it in this field. But here it is, we're doing it. We're the Roman numeral two of it. You know? um, what, what advice do you have to a CEO or a founder of a startup just starting out? What, what's your, what, what are some lessons learned from mistakes, from failures? Uh, you know, obviously, you just talked about grit and persistence getting turned down and moving and launching an incredibly successful company. So, stick to itiveness must be uh, you know, part, of, uh, part of a success. Yeah, yeah. Probably three pieces of advice. Uh, the first one is optimize for people. The most important choice is your co founder choice. I'm a believer in co founders. You know, we'd be further along as a company, and I have to give credit to my co-founder in Informatica. You divide the proceeds by two, but you multiply your chance of success by 10. Oh, it's really simple arithmetic, but it has to be the right person. You're going to be with them every holiday, every Thanksgiving for a long, long time. You better like them a lot. And they 
better be good under pressure because you will see that. So that's one. Okay. Okay. So the second piece of optimize for people is a lot of people raising money, optimizing for valuation. Yes. You know what? When VCs are in seduce mode, they're all great. <laughs> I've never seen a home run in a straight line ever. And I've been in, I've been in one. We'll see what we do here. I've been in one. It wasn't a straight line, guys. From the outside in, we all see the Hollywood version. The truth is there's bumps and bruises along the way. So optimize for people. The other two pieces of advice are, number two is product market fit is just hard. It's going to be painful. If you think you need a grit to raise capital, buckle up. This is where the right choice of people comes in very handy. Because product market fit almost always takes longer and costs more. Yes. So you should raise more money than you think, and you should get the best humans because you might die in product market fit without that. <laughs> I come out alive. It is hard. Let me not tell you. And you should really think to yourself, like challenge yourself. When we started Informatica, we actually went skydiving. I wanted to test my own physical courage. I'm like, could I do a startup? Well, you know what? Let's do something really crazy and see if we don't, if we can get through that, to walk away from it. So the entire founding team, I think there was the two founders, a couple of engineers, six of us went for skydive in Hammond, California from 10,000 feet. They've got these posters of Chuck Norris going, you know, <laughs> we did it because we wanted to say to ourselves, do we have the courage and the grit to do this? So product market fit, prepare yourself. It's not easy, but it's sweet music when you get it. And then scaling actually does, it's not easy. You can still screw it up. You can get Europe wrong or you know, you hire the wrong VP of channels or whatever, that can still, or your product scale, if you go like this, can go crazy. But you can hire seasoned people to help you. You know, but you can't hire anybody for product market fit. You can't. You got to do it. <laughs> so those are probably my three pieces of advice. Wow, I just can't imagine you and Diaz, like, <laughs> skydiving. We did. We did. There's videos. Because when you do a skydive, they videotape you. Yes, I accept all liabilities. If I break my leg or I die, we will not sue you. And, you know, meanwhile, you're looking at this life-size poster of Chuck Norris going, maybe not. <laughs> Ray and I went to Korean barbecue at 1 in the morning, New York City, and that's how we tested our grit. <laughs> <laughs> that's pretty good. Do you have sake shots? <laughs> yeah, maybe so too. We'll Who was standing in the end is what I want to know. <laughs> There's about different levels of Korean spicy hotness. I guess. All right. <laughs> about as far as we got. <laughs> oh, that's, that, that, that's gold advice. Unbelievable. Unbelievable advice. Uh, Thank you. I Thank you. Gonna love that. Yeah. I got all day to tell you about my mistakes, but I don't think you have the time. <laughs> Maybe oh, a week. No, no. We, do, we do. We do. I think there's a lot to learn. No, but but the, the tech scene has definitely gotten more challenging and it is definitely more competitive. Um, and we're definitely seeing a lot. Um, but but there's definitely still a lot more interest and a lot of great ideas. And, and that's why you know, this, is, this is kind of one of those spaces we, we get excited about. Yeah. It's just a much bigger market, Ray. You know, I think about client server, mainframe client server was good, but yeah. like now we're like PC land. Yeah. Like hundred billion dollar companies will be created sort of space with cloud and some of the changes and one hand washes the other. Again, a lot of the cloud innovation came because of consumer internet, because the World Wide web, you know, billions of people, half the world using the internet. That's granted. Like, you know, we, our children see the internet like we see electricity. Right. Oh, right. It I'll existed when you were born. You don't think about his technology. It was always there for you. I'll take it for granted. Yeah. You, have, you have Andrew Nick who says in the future, AI will be viewed as electricity. As a serial entrepreneur, innovator, technologist, where do you go to learn 
And and where do you get, where's your source of inspiration? Who are your mentors? How do you? I mean, the whole company is relying on the CEO to you know define the path. So where do you go? How, how do how do you how do you how do you stay teachable? <laughs> well, you know, my um, I'm with Ben Horowitz on this. First of all, they're investors, so I can tap them. But more importantly, you know, we kind of both been doing this for decades. I, I really like the classics. I would say to me, you know, Peter Drucker, the effective executive is still the best business book to read. Like, you know, there's so many LinkedIn guys regurgitating the same old stuff. Like really, this guy invented this in Vienna in 1920. It's a hundred years old. What are you going to do? You know, like recast it. So I think Peter Drucker, the effective executive, every, everybody should read, you know, uh, Andy Grove, high output management, the best book on management in high technology. And I'll give you a corollary. This is something that I started to read. John Doerr has a book out about measure what matters. Right. It's about OKRs and things. And you know, every company goes through stages. You're going through creative stage, you're going through scaling stage. You're like, you know, what did we do really well last year? We did some things last year. Maybe we can think of execution, maybe think of a strategy. And if you get your strategy right, that doesn't change. Then it's all about execution, 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 right? Wow. So I, I would say John Doerr's book is very promising. I, you know, I, I'm uh, in sort of just starting it, and I would say that would be a good one. You know, but things like that. Exactly. I like classics. Advice yeah. on add balance to it. You know, Clay yeah. Christensen's How to Measure Your Life. So you can right. a business and leadership and tech. And then yeah. you read his book, and you realize like we got to get our priorities straight. We do. Um, Right. Given and the looks, and the commitment. Yeah. And Welcome to the Disrupt TV summer reading list. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> We've got Clay Christensen. <laughs> right. Right. On Amazon page, little link, little link. It'll link to the best-selling authors and, and their and their books. But hey, Gorov, thanks for being on the show. Gorov Dylan, Chairman and CEO, Snap Logic. You can follow him at G D H I L O N. I'd love to be on. Thank you for the invitation. Awesome. Love we'll to be here. We'll see you at the barbecue Happy August Friday. 4th, man. See ya. Absolutely. Happy Friday. See you guys. Happy Friday. Bye. Wow, he was good. Ray, he was, wow. I, I love, this is why Friday is my favorite time of the week. You know? Right. It's, it's Friday. It's time to it's jam. It's a surprise. So. It's a surprise. Um, now, here's what I'm going to say after 107 episodes. Uh, I had a real tough time consolidating the pile of our next guest. What does he do? Or what does he 20 do? Minutes, I'm going to go fast. Uh, it is our privilege to have John Cow, Chief Evangelist at Humanity.co, as our next guest. Uh, Humanity is a company that aims to enable everyone to own, uh, control, and monetize their inherent data. In fact, they launched this week. Congratulations, John. Dubbed as Mr. Creativity and Serial Entrepreneur, Entrepreneur by Economist, John is a thought leader, practitioner, activist who has played a leading role in fields of innovation and business creativity for over 30 years. I'm reading his book, Jamming, right now as we speak. John's knowledge is eclectic and blends the perspective of a former Harvard Business School professor, uh, best-selling author, serial entrepreneur, musician, and I hope we'll hear some of that, uh, facilitator, uh, a Harvard-trained psychiatrist and a Tony-nominated Ray. This may be our first Tony-nominated <laughs> film and stage on our show. He, in fact, recently Yamaha Music Corporation named him their first innovation artist. What an unbelievable uh, recognition! He's a trusted advisor of leaders across across the world. He's the founder and chairman of EdgeMakers, a company that developed a definitive learning experience and blockchain credentialing approach 
to innovative thinking leadership that focuses on young people. In fact, his affiliation as chief evangelist with humanity is built on the fact that this is one of the first blockchain companies to really address the 31st human right, owning your own uh, data. You can follow John and must follow on Twitter at J-O-H-N-K-A-O. I'm out of breath. <laughs> <laughs> I had to figure out how to make my mother proud of me. So uh, there this you go. John, I cut out half of it. I this, is, <laughs> this is the show. Actually, John is the reason I actually bought an S6. I come to remember, I actually remember seeing him. You were one of the guys that were the Yamaha performer guys, right? Absolutely, so, yeah. Yes. What do you have next to you? You do have a piano. Well, What's going I'm on over here? Piano, but I also, I mean, one of the uh, kind of benefits of... Uh, the Yamaha relationship is that they are very generous with free equipment, and then I've supplemented it. So I have pianos everywhere. I have a well, you know, I have a, I actually have a, a grand piano in my office, and then that this Steinway was amazing. This here, this is the piano that I learned on starting at age five. So I've had a longer relationship with this piano than just about anybody or anything else on the planet, which is you know a little kind of non-essential biographical tidbit. But. <laughs> that is awesome. So there's clearly a linkage with music and innovation. Can you share your insights on that? Sure. Uh, you know, I uh, feel that music is a very powerful way of illustrating the fact that uh, for me, innovation is not just a set of whims or uh, CEO hand-waving or culture building, but it actually involves building objective capabilities that require investment and practice. And uh, music is a great way of illustrating that because I think people often have this um, kind of uh, somewhat uh, uh, outmoded idea that unleashing creativity in an organization is like giving people permission to do whatever they want and then trying to put some kind of a structure around it. In musical terms, this is what playing whatever you feel like sounds like. You know, and, and <laughs> it sounds like Ray playing. Well, that sounds like May, actually. Oh, May is actually pretty good, I must say. No, I'm I mean, kidding, I'm but, kidding. But, you know, unless you're a fan of really weird music, you're not going to buy that CD, right? But at the same time, if you just play uh, the sheet music, you know, so you have... Uh, and read the sheet music, it doesn't let you do anything new or... Um, no. Uh, you know, adventuresome. So, you, you know, jazz and other forms of improvised music are about exploration. And you know, jazz is about creating new notes in the moment that have to sound good or the audience will walk out of the jazz club or not buy your CD. And People who uh, know about jazz know that you have to practice 5, 10, 15, oh, yeah. 20 years to get competent and then maybe aspire to mastery. So it's the same thing with innovation for me. You know, whether you look at it as an individual phenomenon or an organizational phenomenon or something that attaches to smart countries, uh, practicing, understanding what the capabilities are you want to develop and how they relate to an overarching strategy becomes some of the key questions that have to be addressed. So, you know, jazz is about a hundred year plus tradition of musicians innovating the form. And traditionally, jazz musicians have not been that articulate about explaining what goes on backstage. So in a way, in a small way, I feel like my, my role has been to be a bridge between what jazz musicians know and what we all need to know. Wow. And, and, and that's really kind of like when I read Janet, right? I, I feel that 
in the yeah. book. I feel that what you're telling people is you get these great HBR case, HBS case studies, right? And people are like trying to like force fit a situation into a case study. Oh, wait a minute. John taught at Harvard Business School just. Oh, yeah, yeah. No, no, no. Hey, I, I know. And, and they're missing the point, right? The point is like, what do you do to take all those different models yeah. and create a portfolio of something new? And that's, that's what I felt like when I read this book. That's right. So, well, and here's the thing. Innovation is both the most abused word in the management lexicon and still one of the most important agendas on any uh, entrepreneur or, ma or manager or leader leaders uh, docket, you know, so how we harness human creativity and collaboration to drive progress in the interest of transformational purposeful results. That's the core question. I mean, we live in a very troubled world. And at the same time, you know, we just saw from the last two um, uh, panelists that innovations accelerating and it's driving like a set of wild driving us into the future like a set of wild horses. And so how we come to understand that capability and be you know, kind of smart stewards of innovation has to be one of the central questions. So my part of my role, I think, in life these days is to kind of rehabilitate innovation and bring innovation to innovation so that ultimately we can look at it as a real discipline, teachable, learnable, measurable, uh, and actionable. A couple of days ago on Twitter, I, I tweeted 20 innovation statements from your innovation manifesto. By the way, unbelievable engagement. That's it. That's exactly it. So, Chairman Chaos Little Orange Book. <laughs> <laughs> it was, I've never seen so much insight packed in such a small package. So, tell us, tell us about the Innovation Manifesto. And, you know, I don't expect you to go through the 20, uh, you know, time tested observations about innovation, but what are some of the two or three um, observations from the manifesto that you think every CEO or every line of business leader should, should know? Well, part of it is uh, making sure that there's a clear set of definitions uh, around innovation that are infused into the culture and the strategic conversation. Because uh, when you meet someone and uh, you know at some great uh, tech event and they say, "Oh yeah, I'm involved with innovation too," you know, either you run for the door, or run for the doors, the run for the doors, is you say you have to ask a question, which is a very simple one: What do you mean? Because without that shared understanding of what innovation is meant. Uh, by you, you can't have a conversation. You know, some people refer to it as a psychological phenomenon, organizational, et cetera. So I think that uh, having a clear set of definitions is very important. Then the second is, you know, answering the question, what do you want from innovation? You know, I see a lot of people out there uh, who glom onto innovation strategy or developing an innovation agenda because they think it's the right thing to do, which right. to me is like, you know, knowing that brushing your teeth is the right thing to do. The real question is, if innovation is the big answer you're looking for, what is the question you're trying to solve for? What's the purpose of innovation? How does it relate then to your strategic processes and your leadership agenda? And you know, typically in companies, there aren't those kind of tight linkages between innovation, strategy, and leadership. As a matter of fact, the, the whole idea of who's responsible for innovation and how you manage it and how to make it objective and tangible within a company, as tangible as playing notes on a piano, is for the most uh, part in most organizations still a promissory note. 
but, but, but John, having two folks in a Regis office in Silicon Valley solves all my innovation challenges. <laughs> well, I, uh, that, that, that's right, I guess. And if you have two of those offices, you're twice as good. You're twice as good, exactly. <laughs> Think about the numbers. No, I'm just kidding. So, but hey, you know, you do a lot of this work. You do it for lots of organizations. I know you've been doing a lot of work with the World Economic Forum. There's a big event that was going on this week. Um, right. What are some of those projects? How do you get involved uh, with, the WEF, with WEF and how do you help them think about the world in a different way? Because that's a pretty big organization there. Well, it's, uh, I think it's networking and it's arbitrage among different communities and it's just being out there a bit and putting uh, your, your little billboard out there. But the way that my relationship with the World Economic Forum started, and it's been going on off and on for almost 30 years, yeah. is that Swiss, this lady from Switzerland showed up at my office in Boston one day and said, how would you like to join our little club? And 30 years ago, the forum was more like a little club. Today, it's a juggernaut. And I think the reason that I'm engaged currently is that in San Francisco, uh, and you can all look at, uh, it up on the web, there's something called the Center for the Fourth Industrial Revolution, which is located at the San Francisco Presidio. And its goal is to advance nine horizon areas of technology, including all the ones we love and care about, like blockchain and autonomy and IoT and precision medicine and, you know, uh, uh, fourth industrial revolution for the environment, the oceans and things of, of this kind. And my contention is that you could say, well, the fourth industrial revolution is about the blending of big streams of technological innovation, or it's about, uh, you know, digital translated into human needs. My feeling is that it's all about us taking our ability to innovate as global civil society to a higher level and to collaborate uh, differently. So, uh, I'm working as an advisor to this center because there is an enormous amount to be done in terms of creating meaningful global networks, meaningful communities of practice that will harmonize this almost runaway uh, technological innovation with some degree of attention to human needs. You know, just the whole notion of ethics and autonomy, uh, to say nothing of what privacy means in this completely kind of uh, a cloudy conversation that we're having these days on a global basis, requires some degree of intellectual heft and stewardship in order to be successful. Otherwise, it'll just be a lot of noise. Extending the conversation on the topic of privacy, tell us about humanity uh, and why, tell us about the 31st human right. And what, what attracted you to, to the company, and, and today you serve as the chief evangelist there. Yeah, you just launched this week, I believe. That's right. This is current events. And Bala, I'm looking forward to learning you about what a chief evangelist does. So, you know, that's a promissory <laughs> note. Uh, for me, it was a tremendous opportunity to take a, a dive from the high board right into the center of what is now the, the next wave of web and digital-based innovation. And uh, for me, it was saying, and I'm a very counter-dependent personality, so I like to dive into things because I figure I'm going to learn a lot and I'm going to be able to hopefully bring something of what I know to the table. And that's, that's how I got engaged uh, with the folks at humanity.co. And it's very exciting because it is about the linkage between technological innovation on the one mm -hmm. hand and large-scale societal agendas on the other. The background is that in 1948, uh, in New York, uh, there was a UN conference to announce 30 fundamental human rights. Uh, Eleanor Roosevelt, uh, interestingly enough, was the major proponent and driver of this. Uh, oh, actually, it was in Paris, excuse me. What, but, you know, another capital city. But Eleanor Roosevelt basically advocated this notion that we should affirm the right to uh, freedom. We should affirm the right to uh, not being tortured by other people. And interestingly enough, there was already at that point 
uh, a right that had to do with the non-interference with privacy uh, and identity and uh, your family uh, lumped all together in one. This is way before anything digital ever existed. Sure. So the notion of the 31st human right is that we should all have the right to own, operate, and if we wish, achieve some financial benefit from our data. Uh, and in a sense, to invert the power relationship between people who currently take our data and use it and monetize it without our knowledge and our inherent right to manage our inherent data for our benefit. Um, and you know what's interesting about this is it's not just a business opportunity to create a more effective uh, interface that allows for individuals to parse these contracts, you know, that we always arbitrarily just say, I agree, so we can get to the good stuff. But we don't know what we're agreeing to, really. And putting some of the, uh, the, the legal uh, heft back into the hands of, of citizens. But ultimately, it's about um, an interesting uh, uh, wedge to disrupt, in a sense, the relationship between uh, citizens uh, and, um, and organizations that are currently enjoying hundreds of billions of dollars of financial benefit from exploiting our data. So I love it because it's technological innovation, it's social innovation, and it has to do with the global common good, ultimately. There is no better time than right now to have this conversation. You know, I, 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 this is a real call that I got last night at, at midnight from the uh, High Commissioner from the Union Human Rights Council. Um, I mean, they, they are looking at this. Right, they are looking at, at figuring what those next set of rights are, and especially with the 70th, 70th anniversary coming up on December 10th, this is a big day for a lot of things that may happen. So and so you're absolutely right. There are big streams of attention that are beginning to converge, and I think humanity.co has a great opportunity to create some of the intellectual scaffolding underneath it. I had a parallel data point, Ray, uh, yesterday, because I spoke to some people from the UN, including uh, the Director General uh, in the UN office of the UN, and the, the, the desire is to close the gap between all of the complexity of these new uh, uh, horizons of privacy, identity, and technology on the one hand, and the relative uh, lack of knowledge on the part of institutional stewards on the other. And you know, we, we have an opportunity to close that gap. We have an opportunity to bring some of these streams together because it's, it's government, it's international agencies, it's corporations, it's citizen groups, and, and then it's all of us. Yeah, no, we, we've, we've got to fight for that, uh, right? And we've also got to educate people along the way. Those exactly. legislators definitely need a lot of help trying to figure out what's going on. Exactly. So given the fact we have only two minutes left, <laughs> I want to come up with a question that forces you to play the piano. Ray, help me out. <laughs> I, mean, I want to hear you play the music. I think you're the first, not only Tony nominated, but you actually <laughs> musical guest. So can you? We've had, we've had musical guests, but we haven't had musical guests uh, like this. Yeah. <laughs> so. The whole notion of music as an opportunity to combine things is something I learned back when I was 18, when I had this amazing opportunity to apprentice with Frank Zappa, who said one thing that I've never forgotten, which is uh, you can play anything and combine any kind of music with any other kind of music as long as it carries a strong 4-4 backbeat. Yes. So something about the newness and the familiarity, the, the pulse and the freedom. Uh, is something that I've tried to carry through uh, my entire life. So, you know, I mean, I could, I don't know exactly where to go with this, but I'll try.
awesome. This is awesome. We are live here with John Couch, evangelist of humanity.co, multiple titles, major thought leader for the World Economic Forum advisor, Harvard HBS professor, long, long time back, always one, never, <laughs> always one, always ever, forever, Harvard professor, a thought leader, a creative genius, a magician. And of course, <laughs> thank you for being alumni here on Disrupt TV this Friday. So thank thanks you for being on the show. Yeah, have a great weekend. Thank you so yeah, much. Great weekend. Thank you. Wow. Action-packed episode here. <laughs> what do crazy. we have to do to get uh, John to be the closing music for Disrupt TV moving forward? I don't know. We're going to have to run a ditty, but uh, we've got episode 109 coming up and the summer does not end. We've got some awesome guests popping up and uh, we've got some cool business school professors, some other folks popping in, our own analysts. What's going on for week 109? We have uh, our guest next week, Gene Litka, University of Virginia, Darden School of Business professor. We have Leah Weiss, uh, PhD author, Live Your Purpose, Reclaim Your Sanity, and Embrace the Daily Grind. Oh, yeah. And we've got our Hall of Fame first ballot Disrupt TV inductee, Alan Lepofsky, who's the Vice President Principal Analyst at Constellation Research, focusing on future of work. And what does all this technology mean in terms of businesses growing, retaining, recruiting talent, and really competing in this digital economy. So it's, uh, it's gonna be a pretty amazing show next Friday. No, yeah, happy Friday, everyone. Have a great one. All right. Mm -hmm.